Technology. It's no silver bullet or get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's a major weapon against the climate crisis, and many people believe that we already have the technology we need to win the battle. It's just a question of deploying it. In a moment, I'll be talking to a man who has assembled a thousand solutions to climate problems. Hello, I'm Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 16th of April 2021. By the way, do you like that signature tune, or is it time for something new? Let me know. Also this week, a follow-up to Fukushima, COP26, why Greta won't be going, why she certainly won't be going in an SUV, Seaspiracy, or is that Seas Piracy? It's that Netflix film, anyway. Adi Adepitan on the front line. Lab-grown meat and growing your own panscara. First, though, let me introduce Bertrand Picard. My guest today is Bertrand Picard from the Solar Impulse Foundation. In the past, he's been described as a, an explorer, as an entrepreneur, and I think he's probably best known for being a pilot, a pilot of a very special aircraft, Solar Impulse 2, which I think you will remember. Uh, it, it is already five years since you made the flight, I believe. But just remind us a bit about that, Bertrand, please. Yes, it's already five years. <laughs> but it was 15 years to get to the point of the success of flying around the world in a solar-powered airplane without any fuel because everybody told me it was impossible. You know, people calculated that the sun would not give enough energy for an airplane to fly. So what we had to do basically is to make an energy efficient airplane that could cope with the quantity of the sun that we would get. And this is why we had these huge wings, wider than a Boeing 747, a very lightweight a family car, small power, but so efficient, that we could stay in the air day and night as long as we wanted without any fuel. And uh, traveling around the world and showing, because that was my goal from the beginning, showing that clean technologies and renewable energies can achieve absolutely impossible goals. Fine, so where does this take us? Uh, uh, are we all going to be flying around the world on electric power, on solar power? Or, or what, what, what are the conclusions that you draw from what you were able to achieve? You know, the Wright brothers in 1903 had an airplane with a gasoline engine like ours on solar power with an electric engine. It was an airplane flying with only one pilot in good weather at slow speed. And everybody thought it's useless. And 66 years later, there were two men on the moon. Chuck Hager had broken the speed of sound. Charles Lindbergh had crossed the Atlantic. And there were thousands of people traveling everywhere. So we see that we should never underestimate the capacity of innovation. So today, like for the Wright brothers, we don't see exactly how we can put hundreds of people in the solar-powered airplane. But what we know is that everything can be much cleaner everything can be much more efficient. And even if you don't produce the electricity of the airplane from the sun during the flight like solar impulse, you can charge batteries of electric airplanes on the ground. 
you can put hydrogen, clean hydrogen produced with renewable energy into a fuel cell for an airplane. And today you already have small airplanes flying on batteries, small airplanes flying on hydrogen, and you have Airbus getting the goal of having a fully carbon neutral airplane in 2035. So things are moving. Absolutely. You say that you spent 15 years before you could get this project off the ground. You had a big team behind you. Is that team still together? And what are they working on now? A lot have continued to work in clean technologies. Uh, some are still with Solar Impulse that has been taken over by a startup called Skydweller to get rid of the pilot of Solar Impulse and have just observation platform staying for months in high altitude. Audrey Borschberg, my partner and friend from Solar Impulse, has created H55, which is a company to electrify the propulsion of airplanes. And uh, part of the team has stayed in the Solar Impulse Foundation to identify financially profitable solutions to protect the environment. And uh, all this incredible team you know, had the purpose of being useful. And this is why they could dedicate so much energy and persistence into a project for, for so long, although it was a very difficult project. Tell me more about the Solar Impulse Foundation. You mentioned profitable solutions to protect the planet. Uh, you, you're talking, I believe, you're aiming for a thousand profitable solutions to protect the planet. How are you getting on towards that target? We have 980 today uh, in end of March, and by beginning of April, we have reached thousands, uh, thousand solutions that can be technologies, devices, products, materials, systems uh, that are able to be of use in the field of water, energy, mobility, construction, agriculture, and industry to reach more efficiency, to protect the environment, and at the same time to create jobs and to make profit. So it's a, it's a huge program. I started after the flight of solar impulse around the world with a lot of people telling me again that it's impossible, people calculating that there would never be more than 300 of them. Well, we have the 1,000 solutions now, and uh, it, it just shows the power of innovation and the fact that we have changed the paradigm. This has to be known. This has to be understood. We have changed the paradigm now. Uh, the protection of the environment in the past was expensive. It was boring. It was requiring behavioral sacrifices. Not anymore today. Today, innovators from all around the world are bringing the solutions we need to replace the old polluting systems with modern efficient systems. And this is the market of the century. That's very interesting because, as you say, the problem in the past has been that solutions have been boring and expensive. And therefore, it's given that an awful lot of uh, environmental protection depends on behavioural change. If people think things are boring, if they think they're expensive, they're not going to do them. Now, you're indicating you've got over that barrier and that, that must be uh, quite an achievement. Yes, because, you know, I'm not only an explorer, I'm also a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist, and I know since a long time that you have to speak the language of the people you want to convince. And the language of the key decision makers today is job creation, 
and profit. So you need to speak about environmental protection and fixing climate change with these two words. If you manage to bring the proofs that it's profitable and it's create jobs, you have won the battle because all the key decision makers will jump for these solutions, will beg to have these solutions in order to reach not only their, not only their environmental targets, but also their financial targets. Okay. C can you give me some specific examples of some of these solutions? Absolutely, with pleasure. A startup who has created a way to recover the heat that would be lost in every factory, to store it and give it, give it back to the factory in order to reduce the energy consumption. Another company who has uh, developed a system to recover the methane that is emitted from the landfills. There are 20,000 landfills in the world. They're emitting, emitting methane that is 80 times more dangerous than CO2 in terms of climate change. And they recover this methane and turn it into energy. Also a fantastic thing. There is, for everybody's life, a module for 500 euros that you put on your thermal engine in your car. And it reduces by 20% the fuel consumption and by 80% the, the quantity of toxic particles that are emitted. For a taxi, it's payback time of six months. And for the lungs of the citizens in the city, it's salvation. <laughs> so you, you see all these solutions, they are profitable because they pay for themselves. And I can give you, I can give you 997 other <laughs> solutions. <laughs> like also, you know, also big corporations, big companies who are diversifying like Schlumberger, Schlumberger, who is known for drilling for oil. And they made a spin-off that is called Celsius, that is drilling for geothermy in the center of the cities in order to install heat pumps in all the buildings. And the heat pump is four times less energy needed than the normal electric radiator. Yes, a very, very interesting idea. Yes, you were talking about this module which makes a, a car engine more efficient and cleaner. Is this already commercialized? Is this available on the market? Yes, it is available on the market, but in some countries, you have a regulation that prevents people to use it because you need to recertify your car. Oh. And once you've done it, you are not allowed to use this car during the peaks of pollution, which you should be able to do because you don't pollute anymore or almost not. So you see one thing that is very important today, if we want these solutions to flow on the market and to be used by everyone, you need to adapt the regulation. Because the regulation today, what's the problem? It's based on outdated technologies and it's outdated regulations. So if you want to use modern regulations, then you can use modern technologies. And this will put the standards, the norms, the authorizations also to bring all these new solutions of the market. So solutions exist, but the legal framework is not ready yet for it. And presumably you are lobbying governments and organizations. Will you be at COP26 pre presenting your case? Absolutely. And I prefer to use the word advocating rather than lobbying because we are non-for-profit. So we are offering all these solutions. We don't have anything to sell. 
but I'm a special advisor at the European Commission. I'm a goodwill ambassador of the United Nations for Environment. Uh, I am going at every cup also. And the goal is really to bring these profitable solutions to corporations and governments in order to allow them to reach their neutrality targets. Because today everyone says we want to be carbon neutral in 2050, but they don't have the, the tools to do it. Our role at the Solar Pulse Foundation with all these innovators everywhere in the world, all these experts, all these companies who have invented new technologies, our role is to bring the tools in order for the governments and the corporations to reach their goals, to, 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 hold, the, to hold their promises, basically. Well, I think we, we all hope very much that their promises can be kept because for in a number of cases, country, well, very, very many countries are saying, yes, we will be net zero by 2050, but very many of them are nowhere near on the right track at this moment. So I hope your messages and your solutions can be heard and accepted and adopted. Yes, that, that's, that's our goal, really to show them that today there are two ways to do. Either we stay in the past with all technologies, all regulations, and we will increase the problem and really have a miserable quality of life on this planet and, you, and lose, lose all the business opportunities of the clean technologies, or we go for new solutions, new technologies, renewable energies, we create more jobs, we make more profits, and we improve the quality of, of, of our life on, on, on the planet. So you see, you don't need to believe in climate change to use these solutions. You can be a climate change denier if you want. I don't care. As long as people understand that it's in their personal advantage to create jobs and to make profit to use these new technologies. Yes. What I was going to ask you then was, as a result of the pandemic, which is well, as, as, as by definition, is affecting the whole world. It is affecting the global economy. As we come out of the pandemic and the economies begin to recover, are we going to have the resources and the investments to adopt these new ways of doing things? Are we going to be able to have a, a truly green recovery? The answer is yes. If we take the opportunity right now, because now we have trillions of dollars and euros flooding on the markets with interest rates that are extremely low, extremely low. This money has to be used to go into the future, not to go back in the past. Just imagine if this money is helping the automotive industry to make more thermal engines that will be in any case uh, prohibited within five or 10 years in the cities. It's useless, it's wasted money. But if you use all this money to modernize infrastructure, to put renewable energies, smart grid, storage, electric mobility, new industrial processes, new agricultural processes, insulation of all the buildings, you get out of the COVID crisis with investments that pay for themselves because you save money with the energy and with the saving of resources. So the money can be paid back and you make pure profits with a modern country, with modern infrastructures and much less CO2 emissions. 
But this we have to do now. If we, if we wait, it will be too long. That's a great vision. But do you believe that our political leaders have the courage and the vision to do that? If they understand that it's in their advantage, yes. You know, a political leader needs one thing. It's job creation to be re-elected. And they need this uh, support from the population. Today, the climate strike, uh, all these children in the streets, they are helping the governments to go into the right direction. Because governments now, they can say, we take these decisions because the population is asking for it. We take these, these decisions because it will create jobs, because it will make the country richer. So it's not anymore a question of making sacrifice, putting a lot of public money for subsidies and protecting the climate in a non-profitable way. No, it's exactly the opposite. So, so I, I think if the leaders are open to the new opportunities, they will do it. Now, of course, some of them will not do it. Some of them will not do it because it's a dogma, because it's their political uh, uh, alibi to, to, to stay in power. But I would say that most of them can do it. And a lot of corporations are starting to do it. Even oil companies who are making diversification into electricity and hydrogen. So if it is possible to do it, if we see that some of them do it, then it needs to become mandatory for the others, the ones who are resisting. They have to be obliged to do it also, otherwise it will make a distortion of competitivity. And this is the only thing we have to avoid. It's this uncertainty and distortion of competitivity uh, that will block all the system. Well, thank you very much for that. Can I ask you to leave us with, with one thought? What should everybody listening to this podcast do tomorrow to make a difference? They can go on the list of the 1,000 solutions that is on the website of the Solar Impulse Foundation. It is for free. And they are not our solution. They are the solutions that have been invented by hundreds and hundreds, thousands even of innovators in the world. And they cover every field that everybody needs. And then you, you look what you can use. You look what will solve your problem and even more than that. You, you take all the solutions as possible and you just implement them in, in your life to insulate your house, to have a cleaner mobility, to, to have uh, more efficiency on your lighting or heating system. You, ju just to give three, four examples, but there are so many of them and you just take this and use them. Bertrand Picard, thank you very much for sharing your ideas with us and every success with your thousand solutions in the future. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was a pleasure to share this vision with you. Bertrand Picard. You can find all those ideas on the Solar Impulse website at solarimpulse.com. Nuclear energy is generally emissions-free in operation and very safe until things go wrong. If you're old enough, you'll remember Three Mile Island, where the radiation leak was contained, and Chernobyl, where it wasn't. Then there's Fukushima, which released emissions and caused evacuations on the same scale as Chernobyl, and the containment problem is still going on. 
Fukushima is in an earthquake zone, and part of the failsafe procedures of the plant was to shut down all the reactors at the first signs of an earthquake. This meant that all power to the site went out, but there were diesel backup generators which quickly restored power to all the control systems. Like many power stations of all types, Fukushima is on the coast. After the earthquake came a tsunami, which overwhelmed the sea defences and flooded the generators, which stopped, and the cooling pumps stopped as well. The resultant loss of reactor core cooling led to three nuclear meltdowns, three hydrogen explosions, and the release of radioactive contamination. In the cleanup operation, which has been going on now for 10 years, tons of water are still used for cooling the wrecked reactors. 170 tons each day. This contaminated water is being stored on site, and there are now around 1.25 million tons stored in more than a thousand tanks. They're running out of space, and the Japanese government has decided that from 2023 it will start releasing the water into the sea. By then, they claim that all radioactivity will have been removed from it, apart from tritium, which is not considered harmful. The local fishing industry is against the idea, and the governments of China and South Korea have both registered their opposition to the plan. It's difficult to see what else could be done. In the meantime, reflect on the fact that most nuclear power stations are by the sea, and that sea levels are rising. Are their sea defences adequate for the climate of the 21st century and beyond? Reactors in current nuclear power stations use nuclear fission, Next week, we'll talk about nuclear fusion. Theoretically, that's a clean and cheap form of nuclear energy, and the reactors cannot explode or melt down, and they don't produce anything that can be used as a weapon. Unfortunately, up to now, no one's actually been able to make one work. Or have they? COP26, you know, the United Nations Climate Conference, scheduled for November in Glasgow. Greta Thunberg says she won't be going to COP26. Recently interviewed by the BBC, she said that the conference shouldn't go ahead because of the inequality of vaccination around the world. Of course, I would love to attend the COP26, but not unless everyone can take part on the same terms, she said. She believes that the conference, originally scheduled for November last year, should be postponed once more. Not good news for the British government, which is hosting the event, the five-year review of progress towards net zero following the Paris Agreement, but a similar message comes from Ivo de Boer, who ran the UN talks at the ill-fated Copenhagen summit in 2009. I think a hybrid, whereby you have the high-level ministerial segment in person and the rest virtual, that might work, he said. But can you cover all the ground that needs to be covered in a virtual meeting? given the fact that generally the process relies very heavily on bilateral meetings and backroom deals. My overall sense is that delay is better than messing it up, overplaying your hand and having a failed meeting. We keep being warned that time is getting shorter. And as I commented recently, the UN Secretary-General was saying back in 2007 that the time for talking was over. It's time now for action. Let's hope that if COP26 is once again delayed, it won't be taken as an opportunity for governments to ignore the issues for another year. 
Greta won't be going anywhere in an SUV, and nor should anyone, according to recent reports. Sports utility vehicles, or 4x4s, with enhanced off-road capabilities, are increasingly popular amongst city drivers. Where's the logic? They're expensive to buy, inefficient on fuel, heavy on emissions, and difficult to get into a standard parking space. And the average car of any size is unused for 95% of its life. As a spokesman for the AA, the Automobile Association said, people like a high driving position and they like the style. To see and be seen, apparently. Interestingly, the spokesman for the UK's other motoring organisation, the RAC, was much more concerned. We should all choose the right vehicle for the right trip to cut the size of our carbon footprint, he said. It is right to question if suburban drivers need a car capable of ploughing over rivers, across fields and up steep hills, just to pop to the shops. The comments come after a report from the think tank New Weather Institute, which said, The numbers stand up long-held suspicions that these vehicles ostensibly designed for off-road are actually marketed successfully to urban users where their big size and higher pollution levels are a worse problem. The report Mind Games on Wheels says areas where SUV owners dominate are also the places where road space is most scarce and where the highest proportion of cars are parked on the street. It says many large SUVs are too big for a standard UK parking space. But three quarters of all SUVs sold in the UK are registered to people living in towns and cities. I was interviewed on talk radio last week and the conversation turned to the banning of fossil fuel cars from 2030. At this stage, it's only the sales of new fossil fuel cars that will be banned. Banning their use would be a phenomenal exercise. Think of all the money tied up in the global car fleet. Maybe there's an opportunity for a new industry to retrofit electric motors to petrol cars. But the whole transport question is far more complex than that. A topic perhaps for a future episode. Seaspiracy, or as I said, it may be Seas Piracy. Seaspiracy, a new documentary about the global fishing industry, has attracted much attention this week. I have to say I haven't seen it because I don't subscribe to Netflix. But it seems to tell much of the story that I covered on the 1st of February when I reviewed What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Balcom. It talks about fish as sentient beings, about how wild fish are suffocated and slaughtered and widely overfished. The BBC Reality Check raised questions about some of the documentary's conclusions. In particular, it stated that predictions of empty oceans by 2048 were based on a 2006 report which has been overtaken by subsequent research. The BBC article raises questions about the relative dangers of different types of plastic waste, but endorses the conclusion that microorganisms in the oceans absorb far more CO2 than the Amazon forests. For the moment. No grounds for complacency, though. Incidentally, there's news this week that French bottom trawlers are devastating the seabed around Jersey. Local fishermen claim that this is because there is a post-Brexit concession which allows French boats to operate in the area until the end of April. So they're dragging up everything they possibly can before the deadline. The Jersey fishermen criticise the heavy gear in use and fear that there will be nothing left. One of my correspondents says she wept when she'd seen Seaspiracy and vowed never to eat another fish.
Should we stop fishing? If you think we should, the problem is you cannot abolish industries like this overnight, unless there's an immediate way to replace all that fish with another equivalent foodstuff, and to replace all those jobs. For hundreds of thousands of people across the world, fishing is their livelihood, and there are millions, if not billions, invested in fishing vessels, harbour infrastructure, processing plants, and a vast supply chain leading to the markets, the shops, and your plate. That's not to say we shouldn't abolish fishing or at least control it, but we must recognise the difficulty of making such a change. First, we need acceptance by governments that there is a scientific imperative for change. Secondly, we need to inform and convince all those involved of the reason for making the change. Then we'll need a plan and the international consensus and resources to implement it. It'll cost billions. Ever since lockdown began, we've been having a takeaway every Friday night. This is partly out of a desire to avoid washing up and partly to support our local restaurants. Recently, we had a vegan takeaway. It contained vegan chicken and vegan prawns. Sadly, for those of us who know what the real thing tastes like, the vegan substitutes were most disappointing. I think that if vegan cuisine is going to become generally acceptable, it has to develop its own ideas and its own signature dishes and not try and replicate things which meat eaters might like. Having said that, there are several reports in the last few days of lab-grown meat and lab-grown fish. In fact, fish is much easier to replicate because it doesn't have the muscles in it like beef. Could artificial fish avoid some of the devastation currently caused by the fishing industry? Will vegans eat it? A new documentary from the BBC this week, Climate Change, AD on the Frontline, in which AD Adepitan takes his wheelchair and his crutches to parts of the world where climate change is having a visible effect. He took us from the Solomon Islands, where the islands are sinking beneath rising sea levels, to the Barrier Reef, to Queensland in Australia, where they are mining coal and wildfires are increasingly common. We met a sheep farmer, desperately trying to preserve his stock after successive years of drought. And we finally ended on Tasmania, where AD interviewed Paul Gilding, a former director of Greenpeace. There were mixed reviews, with some people saying it was just same old, same old, but it's very easy for those of us who think about these issues every day to say that. I think Adia Depitan is likely to reach a different audience, and the first stage of behaviour change must be informing people, so let's enlarge the audience. The Guardian reviewer said, This is hard-hitting because it has to be. Few can deny the urgency of the climate crisis now, and the ones who do are looking increasingly as if they live on a different planet to the rest of us. Yeah, but while the denialists are a problem, so are those who are totally unaware of the issue. All were agreed that the Paul Gilding interview was the most important part. He admitted that he'd moved to Tasmania because he saw a reasonable chance of a catastrophic impact globally as a result of climate change. Tasmania is sparsely populated, is relatively cool, there is plenty of water and plenty of food. We also saw the new wind farm, which will make the island more than self-sufficient in electricity. Gilding said that the total collapse of global civilization was perfectly possible, and in his view, on the path we are on today, it is the most likely outcome. As billions of people try to move, we'll see the collapse of whole continents, 
unstable states and military conflict. Yet he believes the problem is solvable. But it is an emergency which requires mobilisation on the same scale as World War II. He believes the key action is the elimination of the burning of fossil fuels inside 10 years. He believes that governments have the power to do this and will do this if they are forced by the public to do it. That is why Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes are so important in raising awareness and motivating the public. Yes, he thinks it'll be messy and vested interests will fight back, although he doesn't believe they can win. It's an amazing, worrying and almost dystopian vision. I fear that we don't have a government anywhere in the world of the calibre and imagination to undertake such a change. I think we have a very long way to go to convince the public that such changes are needed. The key phrase must be just transition, where everyone has equal protection and equal chances. Given that we have such wide and growing inequalities in the prosperous Western nations, I find it hard to believe that the developing nations will come out of all this well. Tell me what you think. Mail at anthony-day.com And finally, and on a lighter note, be green and grow your own panscara. Do you have a loofah in the bathroom? You know, that cylindrical mesh thing that you use to scrub your back. You could just as well use it in the kitchen. Well, a different one, of course. Did you know it was a plant? It's not a sea creature like a sponge. It's like a cucumber. There's been a rash of articles in the press explaining that you can grow it in your greenhouse. You can eat it if you want to, or you can hang it up to dry until all the flesh falls off, and you're left with a scourer. Biodegradable or what? Nurseries are selling plug plants for planting now, and the Natural History Museum has a video to show you how to do it. And that's it for another week. Before you rush off to the greenhouse, I'd just like to thank you for listening, and if you are, for being a patron. Details about that at patreon.com slash sfr, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. Next week, I plan to talk about rare metals, new insights from NASA, breaking windows at Barclays, cryptocurrency, the future of fusion, reactions to Bill Gates's book, the consequences of three degrees for Australia, and whatever other ideas cross my desk. Until then, have a great week. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, enjoy the sunshine as much as you can. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're very lucky. Or are you just well organised? And look out for another Sustainable Futures report next week. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures report. Until next time. Oh, and let me know about the tune.